This week on The Changelog, well, we thought a good way to wrap up the year would be to talk about what's breaking the internet again. Yes, we're talking about ChatGPT, and we're joined by our good friend, Sean Swix-Wang, between his writings on L-Space Diaries and his AI Notes repo on GitHub. We had a ton to cover around the world of AI and what might be coming in 2023. We do have one more show coming out next week before we wrap up the year, and that is our fifth annual State of the Log episode episode where Jared and I look back at the year and talk through all the great conversations we were to have. So stay tuned for that next week. Sean Wang here again. Swix, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back on. I have lost count of how many times, but uh, I need to track my uh, annual appearance on the Changelog. <laughs> is, is that twice this year on this show? And then once on JS Party at least, right? Shoot. Something like that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's, I don't know. It's, it's a dream come true because, uh, you know, I, I change careers into tech listening to the Changelog. So uh, every time I'm, I'm, I'm asked on, I'm, I'm always super grateful. So, uh, yeah, here to chat about uh, all the hottest, latest things, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's so much going on right now. It seems like things just exploded this fall. So we had Stable Diffusion back in late August, really blew up at the end of August. And then in September is when we had Simon Wilson on the show to talk about Stable Diffusion, breaking the internet. You've been tracking this stuff really closely. You even have a Substack, and you've got Obsidian notes out there in the wild. And of course, you're learning in public. <laughs> so whenever Swix is learning something, we're all kind of learning along with you, which is why we brought you back on. I actually included your Stable Diffusion 2.0 summary stuff in our Changelog News episode a couple of weeks back. And a really interesting part of that post that you have that I didn't talk about much, but I touched on, I want, I want you to expand upon it here, is this idea of prompt engineering not as a cool thing, but really as a product smell. And when I first saw that, I was like, no, man, it's cool. And then I read your just your explainer, <laughs> and I'm like, no, he's right. This is kind of he's a smell. Right. Dang it, he's right again. <laughs> yeah, we just learned about prompt engineering back in September uh, with Simon and talking about casting spells and all this. And now it's like, well, you think it's overhyped. I'll, I'll stop prompting you, and I'll just let you engineer an answer. <laughs> well, so I don't know if you know, but the Substack itself got its start because I would listen to the Simon episode and I was like, no, 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 uh, spellcasting is like not the way to view this uh, this thing. It's not something to glorify. Uh, and that's why I wrote uh, multiverse, not metaverse, because uh, the, the, the argument was that uh, prompting is, you know, you can, you can view prompting as, as a window into a different uh, universe with a different seed. And every seed, uh, you know, it's a different universe. And funny enough, there's a finite number of seeds because uh, basically stable diffusion has a 512 by 512 space uh, and that determines the, the total number of seeds. So yeah, prompt engineering is product spell. Like, I, have to, I have to say it's like not my opinion. You know, I'm just reporting what the AI thought leaders are already saying. And I just happen to agree with it, which is that it's very, very brittle. The most interesting finding uh, in the academic 
arena about prompt engineering is that default GPT-3, they ran it against some benchmarks and they it, it came out with like a score of 17 out of 100, right? So that's pretty low benchmark of like just some logical deductive reasoning type uh, intelligence tasks. Uh, but then you add the prompt, let's think step by step to it. Uh, and that increases the score from 17 to 83, which is extremely like, that sounds great. Like it's a, it's a magic spell I can just kind of throw onto any, any problem to make it think better. But if you think about it a little bit more and like, you know, would you actually use this in, in real work environment? If you said the wrong thing and magically it's like suddenly deteriorates in, in quality, like that's not good. And that's not something that you want to, you want to have in, in any stable product. You, you want robustness. You want, uh, you want natural language understanding to understand what you want, not to react to random artifacts in, in keywords that you give. Since then, we actually now know why Let's Think Step-by-Step step is a magic keyword, by the way, because, and this is part of transformer architecture, which is that the computer has a very, very limited, uh, the, the neural network has a very limited working memory. And if you ask a question that requires too many steps to calculate the, the end result, it doesn't have the working memory to store the result, therefore it makes one up. But if you give it the working memory, which is to ask for a longer answer, the longer answer stores the intermediate steps, therefore giving you the correct result. Talk about implementation detail, right? It's it, yeah, it's leaking implementation detail. It's not great, and that's why a lot of the sort of the, the eventual the the AI leaders, like uh, I think I quoted Andre Karpathy, who was head of AI at Tesla, and now he's a YouTuber, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Sam Altman, who is the CEO of uh, yeah, he quit um, he quit uh, Tesla to essentially pursue an independent uh, creator lifestyle, and now he's he's a YouTuber. I did not know hmm. that. All roads lead to creator land. You know what I'm saying? Like, you'll be an expert in something for a while, and eventually you'll just eject to be like, you know, I want my own thing and create content and educate people around X. Oh, you know, you know, I, I've had a... So, you know, at my, at my day job, uh, I'm, a, I'm, you know, I'm a head of a department now, and I, I work with creators, and some of them have very viable side hustles. And I just had this discussion yesterday of, like, why do you still have a job if you're an independent creator? Like, isn't isn't uh, total independence great? And I had to remind him, no, like career progression is good. Like you're exposed to new things, blah, blah, blah. But that's just me trying to talk about a critic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I have a serious answer, but like, this is not the, this is, we're not here to talk about that. Right. But yeah, mostly, so I'll read out this quote, you know. So Sam Altman, for CEO of OpenAI says, I don't think we'll still be doing prompt engineering in five years. It's not about figuring out how to hack the prompt by adding one magic word to the end that changes everything else. What will matter is the quality of ideas and the understanding that you want. So like, I think that is the prevailing view. And I think um, as people change uh, models, they are understanding the importance of this. Uh, so when Stable Diffusion 1 came out, everyone was like, all right, we, you know, we know how to do this. I'm going to build an entire business on this, blah, blah, blah. And then Stable Diffusion 2 came out and everything broke. All the problems stopped working because it just expected a different uh, model. Like they, and you know, you had to increase your negative prompting, and people are like, "What is negative prompting?" Blah blah blah. These are all new techniques that arise out of out of the model, and this is going to happen again and again and again because you're relying on a very very brittle foundation. And ultimately, what what we want to get people to is computers should understand what we want, and if we haven't specified it well enough, they should be able to ask us what we want. And we should be able to tell them in some capacity and, and eventually it should produce something that we like. That is the ultimate alignment problem. Like when you hear, we talk about AI a lot, like you hear about this alignment problem, which is basically some amount of getting it to do what we want it to do, which is a harder problem than it sounds until you work with a programmer and try to tell them, give them product specs and, and see how many different ways they can get it wrong. But yeah, like, you know, I, I, this is an interesting form of the uh, alignment problem. And it's interestingly, has a very strong tie with Neuralink as well, because the problem 
ultimately is the amount of bandwidth that we can transfer from our brain to your artificial brain. And right now it's prompts, but why does it have to be prompts? It could be images. That's why you have image to image in stable diffusion. Uh, and it could also be uh, brain neural connections. So there's a lot in there. I'm just giving, I'll give you time to pick on whatever you respond to. Well, I went from, so I was super excited about prompting after talking with Simon, you know, a few months back. And I was super excited about stable diffusion. And uh, I went from like giddy schoolboy who's just like going to learn all the spells very quickly to like aggravated end user who's like, nah, I just, I don't want to go to this other website and copy and paste this paragraph of esoterica in order to get a result that I like. And so I wonder what what's so exciting about the whole prompt engineering thing, like to us nerds. And I, I think maybe there's like a remnant of, well, I still get to have esoteric knowledge or I still get to be special <laughs> somehow, you know, if I can learn this skill. But in reality, like what we're learning, I think by all these people using chat GPT, the ease of use of it, as opposed to the difficulty of getting an image out of stable diffusion 1.0, at least is quite a bit different and it goes from aggravating and insider baseball kind of terms, keywords, spells to, you know, plain English, explain what you want mm -hmm. and maybe modify that with a follow-up, which we'll get into ChatGPT. We don't necessarily have to go into the depths of that right now. But I, I changed very quickly, even though I still thought prompt engineering was like pretty rad. And then when you explained to me how Stable Diffusion 2 completely broke all the prompts, I'm like, oh yeah, this is a smell. This doesn't work. You can't just completely change the way it works on people, you know, that doesn't scale. So like, yeah. And, and think about all the businesses that have been built already. Like, you know, right. there, there haven't been any huge businesses built on uh, Stable Diffusion, but GPT-3, you know, has internal models as well. So Jasper recently raised at like a 1.5 billion valuation. And then the, and then chat GPT came out basically validating Jasper. So all the people who bought stock are probably not feeling so great right now. <laughs> That's it. Like, so I, I don't want to overstate my position. There are real moats to be built around, uh, around AI. And I think that the best entrepreneurs are finding that regardless of all these flaws, right? The, the fact that there are flaws right now is the opportunity because so many people are scared off by it. They're like, oh, AI has no moats. You're just, you're just a thin wrapper around open AI. But the people who are real entrepreneurs figure it out. And so I think it's just a really fascinating case study in technology and entrepreneurship, because here's a new piece of technology. Nobody knows how to use and productize. And the people who figure out the playbook are the ones who win. Yeah. Are, are we back to this? I mean, it was like this years ago when big data became a thing, but are we back to this whole world where, or maybe we never left, where data is the new oil is the quote. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because you know, like to train these models, you have to have data. So you could be an entrepreneur and you could be a technologist, you could be a developer, you could be an ML, you could be whatever it might take to build these things. But at some point you have to have a, a data set, right? Like how do, how do you get access to these data sets? It's the oil. You got to have money to get these things. You got to have money to run the hardware to enable, like Jared, you were saying before the call, like there was speculation of how much it costs to, you know, run chat GPT daily. And it's just expensive, but the data is a new oil thing. Like how does that play into training these models and being able to build the moat? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, you know, one distinction we must make there is there is a difference between running the models, which is just inferences, 
which is uh, probably a few orders of magnitude cheaper than training the models, which are essentially a one-time task. Not that many people continuously train, which is, uh, which is nice to have, but I don't think people actually care about that in reality. So the training of the models ranges between and let's just put some bounds for people. I love I love dropping numbers in in podcasts, by the way, because it helps people contextualize, right? Like you see, you made an oblique reference to how much ChatGPT costs, but you know, let's give real numbers. I think the guy who uh, did an estimate uh, said it was running at three million dollars a month. Did you? I don't know if you heard any different, but that that's. I heard a different estimate that would have been more expensive, but I think yours is probably more reliable than mine. So let's just go with that. I went through his stuff and I was like, yeah, okay, this is on the high end. Uh, it, uh, my, I came in between like, uh, yeah, one to three as well, but uh, uh, it's fine. And then for training the thing, so it's widely known or widely reported that stable diffusion costs 600K for a single run. People think, you know, the full thing, including R&D and stuff was, you know, on the order of 10 million and GPC-3, you know, also costs uh, something in, uh, on the order of tens of millions. So I think like that is the cost, but then also that is training. That is mostly like GPU compute. We're not talking about data collection, which is a whole other thing, right? And I think basically there's a towering stack of open source contributions to this data collective pool that we have made over time. And so uh, I think the, the official numbers are like 100,000 gigabytes of data that was trained for stable diffusion. And it's basically pulled from like Flickr, from uh, Wikipedia, from like all the publicly available commons of, of photos. And uh, that is obviously extremely valuable because that, you know, some other, another result that came out recently that has revolutionized AI thinking is the concept of chinchilla laws. Uh, do you guys, have you guys covered that in the show or do I need to explain that? Chinchilla laws is, is misses the mark for me. Please tell. I like the idea though, whatever. It sounds cool. So please. Yeah. They just had a, a bunch of models and the one that one happened to be named chinchilla. So they, they kind of went with it. It's got a cute name, but the main idea is that we have discovered scaling laws for machine learning, which is amazing. So in the sort of classical understanding of machine learning, you would have a point at which there's no further point to train. Uh, you're sort of optimizing for a curve and you get sort of like diminishing returns up to a certain point. And then that's about it. You, you would typically conclude that you have converged on a global optimum and you've, you kind of just stop there. And mostly in the, in the last uh, five to 10 years, the very depressing discovery is that this is a mirage. This is not a global optimum, this is a local optimum. And this is called the double descent problem. If you, if you kind of Google it in Wikipedia, you'll find it, uh, which is you just throw more data at it, it levels off for a bit, and then it continues uh, improving. And that's, that's amazing for machine learning because that basically precipitated the launch of all these large models because essentially what it concludes is that there's essentially no limit to how good these models are as long as you can throw enough data at it. Which means that, like you said, like data is the new oil again, but not for the old reason, which is like, we're, we're going to analyze it. No, we're just going to throw it into all these uh, neural nets and <laughs> let them yeah. figure it out. Well, I think there's a competitive advantage, though, if you have all the data. So like if you're the Facebooks or if you're the Google or you, you know, X, Y or Z, Instagram, even like Instagram ads are so Apple. freaking relevant that. Yeah, Apple for sure. But they're so. Yeah, TikTok. You know, yeah, gosh. Gosh, TikTok, man. Yeah, the point is like these, they have a competitive advantage because they essentially have been collecting this data, you know, would be to analyze potentially to advertise to us more, but what about, you know, in other ways that these modes can be built? I just think like when you mentioned the entrepreneurial mind being able to like take this idea, this opportunity as, you know, this new AI landscape to say, let me build a mode around this and not just build a thin layer on top of GPT, but build my own thing on all together. I gotta imagine there's a data problem 
at some point, right? Obviously, there's a data problem at some point. So uh, obviously, you know, the, the big uh, tech companies uh, have a huge uh, head start. But how do you get started uh, collecting this data as a founder? Um, I think the story of mid-journey is actually super interesting. So between mid-journey, stability AI, and open AI, as of August, who do you think was making the most money? I'll give you the answer. It was mid-journey. I was going to guess that. You can't just give us the answer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But I had like, it. <laughs> it's not obvious, right? Like the closed source one that is not the big name, that is not the doesn't have all the industry partnerships, doesn't have the celebrity CEO. Right. That's the one that had that made the most money. But they launched with a business model immediately, didn't they? Like they had they a did. subscription like out of the box. Yeah. They did. But also something that they've been doing from the get-go is that you can only access mid-journey through Discord. Why is that? Right. Because it's social or I don't know. What, what do you think? I, that was my guess. Like, cause they're right in front of everybody else. Oh, data. Data. Oh, please tell us more, Sean. Because the way that you experience mid journey is you put in a prompt, it gives you four images and you pick the, the ones that you like for enhancing. So the process of using mid journey generates proprietary data for mid journey to improve mid journey. And so from V3 to V4 of mid journey, they improve so much that they have carved out a permanent space for their kind of visual AI driven art. Uh, that is so much better than everyone else because they have data that no one else has. That's really cool. And that's relevance or is it like quality taste? What is what is the data they actually get? Preference, right? What's good. Yeah, yeah. like literally you, you type in a prompt unstructuredly. It tells you they give you four low res images and you have to pick one of the four to upscale it. By picking that four, they, they now have the data that says, OK, out of these four, here's what a human picks. And it's and it's proprietary to them. And they paid nothing for it because it's on Discord. It's fun. It's amazing. That is awesome. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't build a UI. They just, they, just, they just use Discord. I don't know if Discord knows this yeah. or cares, uh, but it's 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 pretty it's pretty freaking That's phenomenal. Pretty uh, because now they have this. It's the ultimate in scrappy, right? It's like by any means necessary. <laughs> That's the ultimate by any means necessary, right? You know, you'll make a beat however you can to put up the track and you know become the <laughs> the star, right? That's amazing. That's really cool. So, so uh, you know, just to close this out, the thing I was saying about Chinchilla was uh, more data is good. We found a double descent problem. Now let's go get all the data that's possible. Uh, I should make a mention about the open source data attempts. Uh, so people understand the importance of data. And basically, Eleuther AI is kind of the only organization out there that is collecting data that anyone can use to train anything. So they have two large collections of data called the stack and the pile, I think is uh, what it's called. Uh, basically, the largest collection of like open source, permissively licensed text for you to train whatever language models you want, and then the similar thing for code. And then they, they're training their open source equivalents of GPT-3 and, and Copilot and, and what have you. But I think those are very, very important uh, steps to have. And basically, researchers have maxed out the available data. And part of why OpenAI Whisper is so important for OpenAI is that it's unlocking sources of text that are not presently available in the, in the available training data. We've basically exhausted, we're data constrained in terms of our ability to improve our models. So the, the largest source of untranscribed text is essentially on YouTube. And there's a predominant or prevailing theory that the primary purpose of Whisper is to transcribe all video to get text to train the models mm -hmm. <laughs> because we are so limited on, on data. Yeah. We've helped them already with our podcast. Not that it matter, but we've been transcribing our podcast for a while. So we just gave them a leg up. Like you did, you and that's did. open source on GitHub too. They probably, I mean like chat GPT knows about change log. They, they know that Jared, I don't know if I told you this yet, but I prompted, I said, complete the sentence. Who's the hosts of the change log podcast. 
Well, that's the dynamic duo, Jared Santo and I'm Stachowicz. Yeah. I mean, it knows who we are. I mean, maybe it's our transcript. I don't know, but it knows. Please tell me it called us the dynamic duo. <laughs> I promise you. It said that? I promise you. It said the dynamic duo. Oh, shucks. And it actually reversed the order. It said Adam Stachowicz first and then Jared Santo, because usually my name is, I guess, is first, because I don't have no clue why it's ever been that way, but it said the dynamic duo. Adam Stachowiak and Jared Santa. That's hilarious. Hosts of the Change Law Podcast. It already understands flattery. Yeah, it does. <laughs> well, I said, actually, the, the first prompt didn't include us. And I said, make it better and include the hosts. And that's all I said was make it better and include the hosts. I mean, in terms of reprompting or, you know, refining the response that you get from the prompt, that to me is the, the ultimate human way to like conjure the next available thing, which is try again or do it better, but give me the host too. And the next one was flattery and actually our names in the thing. Like, so it's, it's crazy. Anyways. Yeah. So that is the big unlock that ChatGPT yeah. enabled. Totally. Uh, which is why usually I take a few weeks for my takes to marinate, to do, for me to do research and then for, for me to write something. But I had to write something immediately after ChatGPT to tell people how important this thing is. It is the first real chat AI which means that you get to give human feedback. And this theme of reinforcement learning through human feedback is the low rest version of it was mid-journey. Actually, the lowest rest version of it was TikTok because every swipe is human feedback. And being able to incorporate that into your, and, and same for Google, every link click is, a, is human feedback. But the ability to incorporate that in to improve the recommendations and the generations is essentially your competitive advantage. And being able to build that as part of your UI, which is why, like, by the way, I, I have been making the case that front-end engineers should take this extremely seriously because guess who's very good at making UI? <laughs> but uh, Yeah, for sure. But yeah, like ChatGPT3 turns it from a one-off zero-shot experience where you prompt the thing and then you get the result and it's good or bad. That's about the end of the story. Now it's an interactive conversation between you and the bot and like you can shape it to whatever you want, uh, which is a whole different experience. Complete the sentence has been a hack for me to use, particularly with ChatGPT. I like complete the sentence is a great way to like easily say, just give me something long given these certain constraints. Well, that's effectively what these models are, right? They're autocomplete on steroids. Like they are basically autocompleting with a corpus of knowledge that's massive mm -hmm. and guessing what words are semantically should come next kind of a thing. In layman's terms, it's more complicated than that, of course, but they are basically auto-completers. Yeah. On that note, though, we have a show coming out. So we're recording this on a Friday, the same day we re released the same podcast, but it's the week beforehand. So we had Christina Warren on. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to use ChatGPT to give me a leg up. Let me let me make my intro maybe a little easier or just, just spice it up a little bit. So I said, complete the sentence. This week on The Change, we're talking to Christina Warren about, and then I ended the quote, and I said, and mention her time at Mashable, film and pop culture, and now being a developer advocate at GitHub. And I got to say, most of, 50% of the intro for the episode with Christina is thanks to ChatGPT. I don't know if I break a terms of service by doing that or not, but like, do I? I don't know. If I do, sue me. I'm sorry. <laughs> but don't sue me. Don't sue us. Uh, we'll take it down. We'll, re we'll exit out. But we'll it was it. mostly, yeah, we'll, re we'll rewrite it. But I mean, it's basically what I would have said. So, 
There's a nice poetry, you know. There's a, there's a YouTuber that's very who's been on this forever, two minute papers, and what he often says is, "What a time to be alive!" And this is very much what a time to be alive. But not just because like we're seeing this evolve live, but because we get to be part of the training data. And there was a very interesting conversation between Lex Friedman and Ajay Karpathy when he was inviting him onto the show. Uh, he he said our conversation will be immortalized in the training data. This is a form of immortality because we get to be the first humans essentially baked in. <laughs> We're essentially baked in. Hello, world. Like 100, 200 years from now, if someone has the ChangeLog podcast, they will keep having Jared and Adam pop up because they're like, in the goddamn training data. <laughs> they're like, come on, these guys have been dead for a long time. Let them go. <laughs> Give them their RIP. <laughs> Which is, which is uh, poetic and nice, yeah. Yeah, it is a good time to be alive. I, I think it is interesting, too. I just wonder, I mean, this might be, you know, jumping the shark a little bit, but I, I often wonder, at what point does humanity stop creating? And at some point, 100 years from now, maybe more, I don't know, we're going to be, maybe sooner, given how fast this is advancing, that we'll create only through what was already created. At what point does it, is the snake eating the snake kind of thing? Like, is there an end to human creativity at some point because we are just so reliant at some point, shape or form on contra results because of training data and this just kind of like morphing to something much, much bigger in the future? Well, so I have an optimistic attitude to that. This question basically is asking, can we exhaust infinity? And so my, my obvious answer is no. There is a, there's a more concrete stat I can give you, which is I think this is floating around out there. Don't quote me on the exact number. But apparently, 10% of all Google searches every single year have never been asked before. For, and Google's been around for like 20 years. That's a big percentage. It's still true. So uh, it, it's, it's on that order. It might be like 7, it might be 13. Well, is it trending down, though? Is it trending down? Like, is it 10% per year, but is it like trending down to like 8? Is it because we put the year in our searches? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's true, Jerry. Good one. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so so th that's what the SEO uh, people talk about when they talk about long tail. Like, uh, you always want there's there's just the amount of infinity is uh, always is bigger than the amount uh, our capability of creating to fill it. I mean, I feel like if you look at us in an abstract way, humans, we are basically taking in inputs and then you know generating outputs. So, like that's <laughs> creativity, right? So. I think what we're just doing is adding more to the inputs. We, we, now we have computers that also take in inputs and generate outputs, but like the result, everything's already a remix, isn't it? Like our life experience and everything that goes into us and then something else produces a brand new thing, which isn't really new, but it's a remix of something else that we experienced. So I feel like we're just going to keep doing that and we'll have computer aided doing that. And the computer will eventually maybe we'll just do the actual outputting part, but we somehow instructed. I don't, I, I'm with Swix on this one. I don't think there's going to be an end to human creativity as the AI gets more and more output. Uh, what's the word when you're just not notorious? What's it called when you just can't stop outputting stuff? I don't know. <laughs> prolific. Prolific. As, as the AI gets, you know, more and more output prolific and overwhelms us with output, I think we're still going to be yeah. doing our thing. It's a, it's the ultimate reduction in latency to new input. Right. Like think of 100 years ago, you know, creative folks were few and far between. You know, they were they had miles between them, you know, depending upon your your system. Maybe it's kilometers. Uh, no offense. But, you know, there's distance <laughs> of some sort of magnitude and the lack of connection and shared idea. So that's the latency. Right. And now 
you know, it's the latency to the next input is just so small in comparison and will get reduced to basically nothing. So we'll just constantly be inputting and outputting creativity. We'll just become like a, a creative exhaust system with zero latency, nonstop creativity. Go, go, go. Well, so I think this, this is where you start. To, I don't know about you, but I feel a little bit uncomfortable with that, right? Like um, our entropy is always increasing in the universe. You know, we're, we're contributing to, to increasing noise and not signal. And that is a, a primary flaw of all these language models, which is they are very confidently incorrect. They, <laughs> they have no sense of physics, no sense of logic. Uh, they will confidently assert things that are not true. And as long as it, it, they are trained on sounding plausible rather than being true. Right. And uh, they're kind of like me when I was in college, you know, <laughs> Exactly. Just, <laughs> just so much confidence, but wrong most of the time. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Exactly. Uh, which happens to Galactica, which is this sort of science LLM from uh, Meta. Where there, uh, Jan LeCun, who was like one of the big names in tech, was like, this, will, this thing will generate papers for you. And, it, and within three days, the internet tore it apart and they had to take it down. It was a very, very dramatic failure of this kind of tech because you're talking about biology and science and medicine and you can't just make stuff up like that. <laughs> right. So like in the world, in the world where chat GPT operates today, which is really in the world of fiction and kind of. BSing for lack of a better term, like yeah, writing intros to a podcast, you know, like it doesn't have to be correct necessarily. It can be like close enough to correct and then you can massage it. Of course you can cherry pick to get the one that you like, but when the rubber hits the road, like on serious things like science, right. Or, you know, how many of these pills do I need to take? I guess that is also, that's health science. So science uh, and other things, it's like, it, ha- it can't be correct 60% of the time or 80 or even like 95, like there's like a, it's got to reach that point where you actually can trust it. And because we're feeding it all t- kinds of information that's not correct, de facto, like how much of the internet's wrong, most of it, right? I mean, medicine though has evolved too, and it hasn't always been correct, though it's also very serious. You get the, you get advice from a doctor 10, 15 years ago, they say it with full confidence and full accuracy, but it's only based on that current data set. But you can sue them for malpractice and stuff, right? Like, well, how do we how do we take recourse against? You can if they actually have malpractice. They can be wrong because you know it's as much science as possible to make the most educated guess. It's malpractice when there's negligence. It's not malpractice when they're wrong. A good doctor will actually go up to the fringe and say, you know what? I'm not 100% sure about this. It's beyond my knowledge. Sure, for sure. Here's what you can do. Here's the risks of doing that. Whereas the the chat bots, the chat GPT thing is like, the answer is seven, you know? And you're like, actually it was 12. It's like, oh shoot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think when there's mortality involved, maybe we, you know, there's going to be a time frame when we actually begin to trust the future med uh, GPT, for example. I don't know if that's a thing in the future, but something that gives you medical results or responses based upon data, real data potentially that you get there, but it's not today. Well, I think this goes back to the data point that you made. And I think where we go from like the 95, let's just make it up numbers here, but like 95% accuracy to get it to like 98 and a half or 99%, like that's going to require niche, high value, high signal data that maybe like this medical facility has because they've been collecting it for all these years. And they're the only ones who have it. And so maybe that's where you like carve out proprietary data sets that take these models from a baseline of accuracy to like in this particular context of, of health, it's this much accuracy. 
And then maybe eventually you combine all those and have a super model. I don't know, Swix, what do you think? I love uh, the term supermodel. I think the, the the term of art in the industry is ensemble, but that just multiplies the cost, right? Like, like if you want to run a, a bank of five models and then pick the best one, uh, that that obviously six x is your cost. So, like, not super interesting, you know. Good for academic papers, but not super interesting in practice, you know, because uh, it's so expensive. The oh man, I, I don't. <laughs> there's so many. There's so many places to to go with this stuff. Okay, there's one law that I love, which is Brandolini's law. I love. I have this uh, tracking list of uh, eponymous laws. Uh, Brandon Lini's law is uh, people's ability to create bull far exceeds the ability of, of people to you know refute it. Like uh, basically, like if all of this results of this AI stuff is that we create better bull engines, it's not great. And and what you're talking about, like uh, that as I uh, you know the the stuff with like the ninety percent correct, ninety five percent correct, uh, that is actually a, a topic of discussion. It's pretty interesting to have the SRE type conversation of how many nines do you need for your use case, and, and where are we at right now? Because the number of nines will actually improve. We are working on you know uh, sorry. We, as in the, the collective human we, not, not me personally. Um, the royal we, yes. <laughs> the royal we. Like, humanity is working on ways to improve to get that up. It's not that great right now. So that's why it's good for creativity and not so much for precision. But it will get better. One of the most viral posts on Hacker News is something that you, you featured, which is the ability to simulate virtual machines instead of ChatGPT3, where people literally open... I, I mean, I don't know how crazy you have to be, but to open up ChatGPT3, type in LS, and it gives you a file system. <laughs> <laughs> but that only exists. It's not a real file system. It's just one that's inside. It's, it's not a real file system for now. It's not a real file system for now because it, it hallucinates some things. Like uh, if you ask it for a Git hash, it's going to make up a Git hash that's not real because you can verify it with MD5. But like how long before it learns MD5? And how long before it really has a virtual machine inside of the language model? And if you go that far, what makes you so confident that we're not in one right now? So <laughs> now I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> that actually is a very short hop into the simulation hypothesis because we are effectively simulating a brain. Uh, and if you get good enough at simulating brains, what else can you simulate? What else would you want to simulate? <laughs> I mean, that's the, uh, that's the holy grail, a brain. I'm so like, yeah, uh, I really like uh, Imad. So Imad Mostak is the CEO of Stability AI. He's like, we're completely unconcerned with the AGI. We don't know when we'll get here. We're not working on it. But what we're concerned about is the ability to augment human capability, right? Like people who can't draw now can draw. People who, who uh, can't write uh, marketing text or whatever can now do that. And I think that's a really good way to approach this, which is we don't know what the distant future is going to hold, but in the near future, this can help a lot of people. It's the ultimate tool in equality, right? I mean, if you can do... Yeah, there's, there's a super interesting use case. Um, so there's, there's a guy who, who was like sort of high school educated, like not very, not very professional, you know, applying for a job. And what he used uh, ChatGPT to do was like, here's what I want to say, and please reword this in a professional email. And it basically helped to pass the professional class status check. Do you, do you know about this uh, status checks? Like all the, all the sort of um, informal checks that people have like, oh, like, oh, yeah, we'll fly you in for your, for your job interview. Just, uh, you know, put the hotel on your credit card. Some people don't have credit cards. And likewise, when people email you, you judge them by their email, even though they just, some, some of them haven't been trained to email, to write professionally. Right. And so, yeah, GPT is helping people like that. And it's a huge enabler for, for those people. Huh. That is, I mean, I like that idea, honestly. I mean, because it does able more people who are less able. It's a net positive. Yeah. I mean, I have, you know, I seem generally capable, 
but also I have RSI in my fingers and sometimes I can't type. And so what this, what Whisper is enabling me to do and co-pilot, uh, so GitHub at their recent GitHub universe uh, uh, recently announced a voice enabled co-pilot. And it is good enough for me to navigate VS code and type code with co-pilot and uh, you know, voice transcription. Those are the two things that you need. And they're now actually good enough that I don't have to learn a DSL for voice coding like you would with Talon or all the, all the prior solutions. You know, it's the ultimate, if you're creative enough, it's almost back to the quote that Sam had said that you liked. Well, I'm going to try and go back to it. He says at the end, because they were just able to articulate it with a creative eye that I don't have. So that to me is like, you know, insight, creativity. It's not skill, right? It's the ability to dream, which is the ultimate human skill, which is since the beginning of time, we've been dreamers. This is a new brush. And uh, some artists are learning to to draw with it. There will be new kinds of artists created. Provided that people keep making the brush though, it's a new brush. I mean, if... <laughs> but the secret's out. The, the secret's out that you can make these brushes. Right. Yeah, but you still have to have the motivation to keep, to maintain the brush though. What about access too? I mean, yeah. right now you're talking about somebody who's made able and isn't otherwise with, let's just say, ChatGPT, which is free for now. But like, this is a, OpenAI is a for-profit entity and they can't continue to burn money uh, forever. They're going to have to turn on some sort of a money-making machine, and that's going to inevitably lock some people out of it. You know, so now all of a sudden, access becomes part of the class, doesn't it? Like you can afford an AI, and this person cannot, and so that's going to suck. Like it seems like that the open source could be for the win there, but like you said, Swix, there's not much. Moving and shaking in that world. Well, I haven't stopped thinking about what Swig said last time we talked, which was, you know, above or below the API, which is almost the same side of the coin that we talked about last time, which is like, this is the same thing. Yeah. Well, Chad, GPT is an API, isn't it? Yeah. Nice little callback. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I really haven't been able to stop thinking about that. Every time I, I like use any sort of online service to get somebody to do something for me that I don't want to do because I don't have the time for it, or I'd rather trade dollars for my time. I keep thinking about that above or below the API, which is what we talked about. And that's what Jerry just brought up is the same exact thing. Yep. 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 It is. Um, one, one more thing I wanted to offer, uh, which is the logical conclusion to generative. So that post where we talked about why prompt engineering is overrated, the second part of it is why you shouldn't think about this as generative. Because right now, the discussion that we just had was only thinking about it as a generative type of use case. But really, what people want to focus on going forward is, well, two things. One is the ability for people to, for it to summarize and understand and uh, reason, and two, for it to perform actions. Uh, so this is what uh, the emerging focus is on agentic AI, uh, AI agents that can perform actions on your behalf, essentially hooking it up to uh, giving it uh, legs, and, legs and arms and uh, asking it to do stuff uh, autonomously. So I think that's super interesting to me because then you get to have it both ways. You get to you get AI to expand bullet points into prose, and then to take prose into bullet points. And there's a very there's a very a funny tweet from Josh Broder, who's a CEO of Do Not Pay, which is a, yeah. kind of like a I'm a fan of him. Yeah, fantastic, right? Uh, so what what Do Not Pay does is they get rid of annoying payment UX, right? Like sometimes it was parking tickets, but now they're trying to sort of broaden out into different things. And so he recently tweeted that uh, Do Not Pay is working on a way to ch talk to Comcast. To, to negotiate your, your cable bill down. And since Comcast themselves are going to have a chatbot as well, it's going to be chatbots talking to each other to resolve this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It's like a scene out of Futurama or something. 
Yeah, but so I'm, I'm very excited about the, the summarization aspect, right? Uh, one of the more interesting projects that came out of this recent wave was Explain Paper, which is uh, you can throw any academic paper at it and it explains the paper to you in approachable language and you can sort of query it uh, back and forth. And I think uh, those are super interesting because that starts to reverse Brandolini's law. Uh, instead of generating bullshit, you're taking bullshit and getting it into some kind of order. And that's very exciting. Yeah. yeah. 17 steps back, it makes me think about when I talk to my watch and I say, text my wife. And, you know, I think about, like, who is using this to their betterment? And I'm thinking, like, we're only talking about adults for the most part. My kid, my son Eli, I mean, he talks to Siri as if, like, she knows everything, right? But here's me using my watch to say, text my wife. I say it. It puts it into the phone. And the last thing it does for me, which I think is super interesting for the future, is, like, this AI assistant is send it is the final prompt back to me as the human. Should I send this? And if I say no, Siri doesn't send it. But if I say send it, guess what she does? She sends, she sends she it. Sends it. She, but I love this idea of the future of like maybe some sort of, you know, smarter AI assistant like that. I mean, to me, that's a dream. I'd love that. Yeah, I was, I was watching this clip of um, the first Iron Man when, you know, Robert Downey Jr. is kind of working with his bot to work on his first suit. And he's just talking to the bot, like, here's, here's what I want you to do. Sometimes he gets it wrong, he slaps it on the head. But, like, more often than not, he, he gets it right. And this is why, like, I've been, um, you know, Wes Boss recently tweeted, like, should we, like, this is actually really scary. Should we be afraid as engineers, like, this is going to come for our jobs? And I'm like, no, like, all of us just got a personal junior developer. Uh, that should excite you. Yeah. And it seems like it's particularly good at software development answers. <laughs> uh, you think it's because there's lots of available text? I mean, think about like things that it's good at. It seems like it knows a lot about programming. I have a list. You want, you want a list? Yeah. So writing tutorials, it's very good. Literally uh, table of content, section by section, explaining like you should, first you should NPM install, then you should do X, then you should do Y. Debugging code, like explaining like, just paste in your error and paste in the source code and it, it tells you what, what's wrong with it. Dynamic programming, it, it does really well. Translating DSLs. I think there will be a thousand DSLs blooming because the, the barrier to adoption of a DSL has just disappeared. <laughs> so why would you not write a DSL? No one needs to learn your DSL. What is this, Copilot you're using or ChatGPT that you're... ChatGPT3. I have, I have a bunch of examples here I can uh, drop in the show notes. AWS IM policies. Hey, I want to do X and Y in, in AWS. Guess what? There's tons of documentation. AGPT knows AWS IM policies. Code that combines multiple cloud services. This one comes from Corey Quinn. 90% of our jobs is hooking up one service to another service. You could just tell it what to do and it just does it, right? <laughs> there's, a, there's a guy who like, I fed, I fed my... You know, my, my college computer network's homework to it, and it uh, gave the right result, which is pretty interesting. Uh, refactoring code from Elixir to PHP is another one that has been, uh, has been done. Uh, and obviously, uh, Advent of Code, which is when we're recording this in December now, the person who won... Uh, so Advent of Code for the first 100 people is a race. Uh, whoever submits the, the correct answer first wins it. And the number one place in, in the first Advent of Code this year was a ChatGPT guy. Ah. <laughs> so like, it, it broke homework. Like... This thing has broken homework in an interview and take home interviews, basically. Completely. <laughs> so nice though. Like I've only used it a little bit while coding, but it's got it's two for two 
of just like drilling my exact questions and like just stuff like uh, how do you match any character that is not an at in a regular expression like that's oh yeah explaining regexes yeah. yeah like that was my question like i know exactly what i want but i don't i can't remember which is the character and so i just asked it and it gave me the, the exact correct answer and an example and explained it in more detail if I wanted to go ahead and read it. And it warned me, hey, this is not the best way to test against email addresses. But, you know, here it is. So I was like, all right, this is uh, this is a good thing for developers, yeah. for sure. But you can't trust it. So you have a responsibility as well. You can't just say, you can't write bad code, have something bad happen and go, oh, it wasn't my fault. It was ChatGPT. Well, you can't paste Stack Overflow answers into your code either. You have the responsibility. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can, but you're going to get fired, right? Like if, if the buck stops at you, not at the Stack Overflow answer person, you can't go find them and be like, why were you wrong? Right. It stops at you. Yeah. So, you know, I think the way I phrased it was, you know, do you know about this uh, trade offer meme that is going around? So it's trade offer. You receive better debugging, code explanation, install instructions, better documentation, elimination of, of your breaking of flow from copying and pasting in Stack Overflow. You receive all of these benefits in exchange for more code review. There is a cost, which is code review. You have to review the code that your junior programmer just gave you. But hey, that's better and easier than writing code yourself. Yeah, because you got a free junior programmer working for you now. <laughs> There's a guy that says... Uh, I haven't done a single Google search or consulted any external documentation for the past two days, and I was able to progress faster than I ever had when learning a new thing. I mean, it's just, it's it's amazing, and, it, and Google should be worried. Yeah, that's what I'm going to say. Is this an immediate threat to Google? Now, I did see a commenter on Hacker News, so I'm not sure if you saw this one, from inside of Google, talking about the cost of integration. Yes, yeah, I've, I've read basically every thread. It's just a, yeah. a full-time job, but it, this is so important. Like I don't do this for most things, right? Like I think this is big enough that I had to drop everything in and go read up on, on and, and, you know, not be an overnight expert, but like at least try to be informed. And that's all I'm doing here really. Uh, but yeah, yeah. You want to read it out? Yeah. 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 So uh, in summary that they're, they're responding, this is on a thread about chat GPT and they say, this is a Googler. And they say it's one thing to put up a demo that interested nerds can play with, but it's quite another thing to try to integrate it deeply in a system that serves billions of requests a day when you take into account serving costs, added latency, and the fact that average revenue on something like a Google search is close to infinitesimal, which is a word I can't say out loud, already. I think I remember the presenter saying something like they'd want to reduce the cost by at least 10 times before it could be feasible to integrate models like this in products like Google search. A 10x or even 100x improvement is obviously an, an attainable target in the next few years. So I think technology like this is coming in the next few years. So that's the that's a one insider's take on where Google stands. Obviously, Google has tons of resources dedicated to these areas of, of expertise, right? It's not like Google's asleep at the wheel and is going to completely have their lunch eaten by OpenAI. But right now, there's a lot of people who are training new habits, right? Like they're like, I'm not going to use Google anymore. I'm going to start using OpenAI. I think it's something on the order of 1 million users in the first few days have signed up. Uh, how long can Google potentially bleed people before it becomes an actual problem? I don't know. I don't know the answer to these things. So uh, there's um, there's one way in which you can evaluate for yourself right now. And I think that's the most helpful, constructive piece of advice that we can give on this podcast, which is, you know, it's it's we're covering something that is moving very live, very fast. Everything that we say could be invalidated tomorrow by something new. 
But you could just run ChatGPT3 alongside of all your Google searches. That's a very, very simple way to evaluate would this replace Google for you? Just run it twice, every single time. And so there's a Google extension, I'll link it. It's a Wang2 chat GPT Google extension. I'll put it in the show notes. And yeah, I have it running. Um, it's not that great, <laughs> surprisingly. <laughs> so chat GPT is optimized for answering questions. And sometimes I don't ask, I don't put questions in there. I just put the thing I'm looking for and Google's pretty good at that, it turns out. Right. <laughs> You're See, because you are a expert level Google prompt engineer, right? Like you know how to talk to Google. We have optimized to Google prompting, yes. I know. Exactly. Like if I, if I need to search for within a certain date range, I know how to do that in Google. I can't do that in ChatGPT3. If I need to look for PDFs, I know how to do that. Uh, if I want to look for Reddit and constrain the, the site to Reddit, I know how to do that. Uh, ChatGPT3 has no concept of attribution, no concept of uh, date ranges and stuff like that. Right. But yeah, it is just like better in some things and worse in other things. And that is the nature of all new technology, right? It just has to be better at one thing that it cannot get, it cannot get anywhere else. And it has a permanent hold in your mind. Whenever you need that thing done, you will turn to ChatGPT3 or any, any other new technology, right? Like I love this like sort of meta philosophy about technology adoption, like because all new toys just generally are worse than the things that they replace, except in one area. And that's the area needs to matter. And if it does matter, it will win because they'll fix the, they'll fix the bugs. Yeah. Oftentimes with disruption, that area is cost, like acquisition cost. Uh, sometimes it's convenience and uh, maybe I guess sometimes it's accuracy. There's different metrics, but it's gotta be the one that matters. If it's like a little bit, if it's marginally better at things that don't matter, you're not going to disrupt. But if it's a lot better at one thing that matters a lot, even if everything else sucks, you'll use that thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it, it's interesting because, you know, Google has a few things going for it. By the way, it has one of the largest training repositories of text that no one else has, which is Gmail. But the most impressive thing is, is being able to ship with Gmail is the little autocomplete, like, looks good, okay, <laughs> you know, type little, little buttons that you see in the, in the smart replies. Do you guys ever use those? Do you ever click on those? I use that. I use that. Save some typing. Yeah, well, I used to actually use Gmail directly to compose my emails or respond you know, I would tab to complete all the time if the response was like, yeah, I was going to say that, you know, I use it in, there's a billion little ways that AI is built into Google right now that we just don't, we take for granted because we don't feel it because there's no prompts. <laughs> <laughs> we need a prompt. <laughs> Even if OpenAI did eat Google's lunch, Google would just acquire it, you know, or something. You would think so. Uh, yeah, but I, 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 Probably, like I would say that probably OpenAI is not for sale. Uh, like they they have they have this world conquering ambition that would just not let them mm -hmm. settle for anything less than global domination, which is a little bit scary, right? Like yeah, I think they're probably going the distance is their plan. It seems like well, if, if anything, Microsoft should have bought them when they had the chance uh, because that was Bing's opportunity, and uh, I don't think I don't think that ever came to pass. Probably because Sam Altman's smart enough not to do that deal. But yeah, so like Google's probably so like. Okay, let's take that line of thinking to its logical conclusion. What would you feel if Google started auto-completing your entire email for you and not just like individual, like two or three words? You would feel different. You would feel creeped out. So Google doesn't have the permission to innovate. I wouldn't freak out if I opted in though. Like if I was like, this technology exists and it's helpful, I'll use that. Now, if it just suddenly started doing it, yeah, it creeped out. But if I'm like, yeah, this is kind of cool. I opt into this enhanced AI or this enhanced auto-completion or whatever, you know, simplifies the the usage of it or whatever. 
Yeah, so uh, there's actually some people working on an email client that does that for you. Uh, so Evan Conrad is working on every prompt email, which is essentially you type a bunch of things that you want to say and you sort of batch answer all your emails with custom generated responses from GPT-3. It's a really smart application of uh, this tech to email that I've that I've seen. But I just I just think like you you would opt in. The vast majority of people never opt into anything. No, yeah, most people don't. Right? Opt like in. that's just not the default experience. So I'm just saying, like, one reason that Google doesn't do it is, yeah, we're we're just too big, right? That that is essentially the the response that you read out from that engineer. Like, we are like this doesn't work at Google scale. We can't afford it. Uh, it it will be too slow. Like, whatever. That's kind of a cop out. I feel like because Google like should be capable. Like, these are the best engineers in the world. They should they should be able to do it. Well, he he does say he thinks it's coming in the next few years. So you know he's not saying it's impossible. He's saying they're not there yet. And I will say I give I'm giving ChatGPT the benefit of my wait time that I do not afford to Google. I do not wait for Google to respond. I will give ChatGPT three to five seconds. Yeah. Because I know it's like a new thing <laughs> that everyone's hitting hard, right? But like if they just plug that in, it would be too slow. Like I wouldn't wait three to five seconds. For a Google search. Yeah. By the way, that's a fascinating cloud story that you guys got to have on. Find the engineer at OpenAI that scaled ChatGPT3 in one week from zero to one billion users. Yeah, totally. Well, if you're listening or you know the person, this is a, an open invite. We love to have that conversation. Yeah. I know that I've seen the profile of the guy that claimed to, to watch it live so that he would know, but I, I don't know who at like, yeah, who would be responsible for that? That that is one of the most interesting cloud stories probably of the year, mm-hmm. and and isn't like Azure should be all over this. Azure should be going like, look, they handled it, no problem. Like this is the most successful consumer product of all time. Like, <laughs> come at us, right? Um, That's like, true. They should. They're the number three cloud right now. They, they this is like their one thing. This is their time to shine. Like they 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 got to do it, you know. And does anybody even know that Azure is behind OpenAI? I'm sure you can find out, but like, is that well known? I didn't know that. Oh, it's very public. Microsoft invested a billion dollars in OpenAI. Okay. Did you know that, Adam? Mm-mm. So I'm trying to gauge the public knowledge. What we didn't know that was that it was at a valuation of $20 billion, which like, so OpenAI went from like, a kind of weird research lab type thing into one of the most highly valued startups uh, in the world. <laughs> you, th- you think, you think Microsoft got their money worth? Uh, I think so. It's a, it's a wash <laughs> right now because like, they probably cut them a lot of favorable deals for training and stuff. So like, it's more about like being associated with one of the top AI names. Like this is the play that Microsoft has been doing for a long time. So it's finally paying off. So I'm, I'm actually pretty happy for them. But then they have to convert into like getting people who are not named OpenAI onto this thing. term play here though i mean like if microsoft invests that kind of money and we're using chat gpt right now we're willing to give it extra seconds potentially even a minute if the answer is that important to you that you wouldn't afford to google like what's the play for them will they turn this into a product how do you make billions from this do you eventually just get absorbed by the fangs of the world and next thing you know now this incredible future asset to humanity is now owned by essentially folks we try to like host our own services for like we're hosting next cloud locally so we can get off the 
Google Drives and whatnot, and the, all this sort of anti whatever. Like, I mean, what's the end game here? God, uh, am I supposed to answer? <laughs> Do you have that? an answer for that? <laughs> Do you have an answer? I mean, that's what I think about. Let's ask Chat GPT what the end game is. No, I mean, uh, short term doesn't seem like Open AI becomes the API layer for every AI startup that's going to start in the next five or ten years, right? Like. Aren't they just charging their fees to everybody who wants to integrate AI into their products, pretty much? Like, that's not endgame, but that's short-term business model, right? Th that is a short-term business model, yeah. I bet they have, uh, you know, much more up their sleeves. I, I, I don't actually know. But they did just hire their first developer advocate, which is interesting, because uh, I, th I think you'll, see, you'll start to hear a lot more from them. Well... There's two things I will offer for you. So one is, it's a very common view or perception that AI is a centralizing force, right? Which is, Adam, what you were talking about, which is, does this just mean that the big always get bigger, right? Because the big have have the, the scale and size and data advantage. And one of the more interesting blog posts, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember who I read this from, was that actually one of the lessons from this year is that it's not necessarily true because AI might be a more decentralized force because it's more amenable to open source. And crypto, uh, instead of being decentralized, turned out to be more centralized than people thought. So like the, the, the two directions of centralized versus decentralized, the common perception is that AI is very centralized, uh, very centralized and crypto is very decentralized. The reality was that it's actually the opposite, which is, uh, which is fascinating to me as a thesis, right? Like, is that the end game that AI eventually gets more decentralized because people want this so badly that there are enough researchers who go to NeurIPS to present their research papers and tweet out all this stuff that diffuses these techniques all over the place. Uh, and we're, we're seeing that happen, helped in large part by Stability AI. Like the proof that Stability as an independent, like you know, outsider company, like not a ton of uh, connections in the AI field, did this uh, humongous achievement, I think it's just a, a remarkable uh, encouragement that like, anyone could do it. And and that's that's a that's a really encouraging thing for for those people who are not Fang and trying to make some make some headroom in this world. So that's one way to think about the future. The second way to think about like whether or not who monetizes and who makes the billion dollars on, on this. There's a very influential post that I that I was introduced to recently from uh, Union Square Ventures called "The Myth of the Infrastructure Phase," which is directly tackling this concept that everyone says when you have a gold rush, sell picks and shovels, right? And it's a very common thing, and like, presumably AI being a gold rush right now, you should sell picks and shovels, which is you should build AI infrastructure companies. But really, like there are tons of AI infrastructure companies right now. There are a dime a dozen. Really, like they're all looking for use cases. And uh, basically, the the argument of the myth of the infrastructure phase is that technology swings back and forth between app constraint and infra constraint. And right now, we are not infrastructure constrained; we're app constrained. And really, it's the builders of AI-enabled products like TikTok that know what to do with the AI infrastructure that can win. So I, I will introduce those concepts to you. I don't know what specifically that means. I'm looking out for opportunities like that myself, but I think it's apps. I think it's it, it may not be infra because it's going to trend very, very hard towards commodity infrastructure provisioning. And I don't really care where I get my A100s from. A100 being the predominant NVIDIA chip that is being used to train all these models, which by the way, costs $200,000 per chip, which is insane. <laughs> Imagine a GPU costing that much. Yeah. I also think about, you know, something, you know, kind of one step removed to some degree, but, you know, is the future innovation that changes the direction of humanity tied to capitalism, right? Because like the, the innovation that happens in this space in particular, which we see is very beneficial, you know, abling those who are not able is a very beneficial thing, obviously. But if it's tied to the fact that it's tied to a company that can profit, 
it's, you know, I'm not an anti-capitalist by any means. And I'm also not like only capitalist. Like it has to make money or else it dies. But that's kind of the world we're in. Like as a startup, all roads lead to either, you know, acquisition, IPO, or you just have a, an amazing customer base that you just are profitable on your own. There's some sort of exit. Like there's investment, there's exit. And I just wonder how this advancement, this innovation that totally is the future of humanity, you know, how it lives in a capitalistic world where it may or may not die. And then eventually this thing has to profit. And so therefore, you know, is it value or is it the fangs? I guess, I guess I don't trust the fangs so much. Like if they get their hands and they have the centralization of this thing and they are the controllers like Google is of search. Now I, I love Google in many respects, but in a lot of cases, I don't want to give it all my data, even though it knows everything about me. I mean, it knows my YouTube history. So it knows probably the most I ever wanted to know about me just because of that. Like it knows my interests just because of that. But like, I'm weary about that, right? Like, I don't know. Call me a skeptic. Call me cynical. Well, I, I will paraphrase Churchill when I say, you know, capitalism is the worst form of economic organization, except for all the others that we've tried. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that's what makes things win. It's just, you know, how... And do we end up getting like uh, a version that's sellable versus a version that's usable? And maybe that's the same, but maybe it's not. Well, I mean, if if this new thesis is correct, it's not actually a centralizing force. Perhaps that the open source side of things will step up to the plate. It's so valuable that other people will can do it in the small. Maybe we'll learn new techniques where you don't have to have all the world's data to get good results. I mean, we don't know exactly how this thing is going to play out, but it's possible that we will see even large organizations like OpenAI is going to become, has an open source whisper thing, which we can all run on our machines. And uh, I mean, Swix, they have a devious reason for it uh, to open source that sucker. Yeah, not devious, a capitalistic reason for open sourcing that sucker. Yeah, it's not, re yeah, it's not devious. Well, it's a bit underhanded if it's like, if, if it's if it's pitched as altruistic, and then it's like, what? We're doing it to get this stuff transcribed. They never said altruistic. They never said the intention. They just released it. That's all. <laughs> well, it's just the de facto open source story is altruism, isn't it? Like, that's just what it gets assumed. Yeah, yeah. It's like, true. why would you do this? It's like, well, we're not going to tell you. So you assume it's altruistic. <laughs> uh, anyways, regardless of their intentions, my point is that we do have open source things that are happening. And perhaps they will uh, continue to thrive and we'll have alternatives as we have had historically. Well, okay, we have to figure out licensing. This is a huge point of discussion because the code, like MIT licensing the code doesn't matter. It's the data that needs licensing and the model weights that needs licensing. And we don't have a legal framework for that. So open rail is the current form, but even there's, there's been like five different variations of open rail right now. And <laughs> there's a lot of back and forth about like what responsible AI uh, open sourcing is, and it's super interesting to, to follow along. If, if you're interested, uh, look up for Yannick Kilcher, who has been, I think, one of the best sources of, of getting up to speed on AI on, on YouTube that I've that I found. He's kind of like a weird personality, but like he made a real impact because he made his own license and Stability adopted it for Stability V2, which is huge. Like a random YouTuber is just like making up his own license and, and Stability going like, yeah, that looks good. <laughs> like, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> it's fantastic. Uh, and then, of, of course, all the open source, uh, you know, originalists, the fundamentalists going like, this isn't open source, it's not OSI approved. I'm like, right, right. OSI is relevant now because the information, the, the, the value of the work just moved from the code layer to the weights and data layer. Right. 
while you're giving resources, I have one as well. Our friend Louis Via from Tidelift, tech lawyer Louis Via, has a newsletter called Open-ish Machine Learning News. Of course, he's very much on the licensing side of being a, uh, a lawyer, and he's following all of the things and summarizing and writing his thoughts. I've been following his newsletter for six weeks now, and I've been really enjoying it. So if you want to follow more things, uh, check out his as well. Swix, let's talk about your Substack, man. Let's get some subs to your Substack as we tail out. <laughs> latent space. Uh, you know, prompt. I'm prompting you for the promo. Latent space diaries. Yeah, so it's lspace.swix.io. The reason it doesn't have a domain, like I could have got swix.ai or something, is because I wasn't sure when I started this how much of a fad it was. And I was like, oh, you know, I don't know if like I should put this on my regular blog because this could come and go. Like I'm not an AI expert in any way, but I, this then just became so dominant in my thinking that I had to have an outlet. So I, I started this Substack, and yeah, lspace.swix.io. It's got all the perspectives that I've been collecting. I just got a submission for my first guest post, so we'll see if it might become uh, more of a thing. But right now it's just my thinking long and I have a GitHub repo with all my sources. So I tend to keep the blog and the sources separate because the sources evolve much faster than the blog. So highly, you're welcome to, to pick and choose from whatever you wish, but uh, thanks for uh, having me on and letting me plug uh, the newsletter. We appreciate your thinking. We appreciate you, you know, in the public, doing this all the time, all the things. It's actually kind of scary. I mean, <laughs> I appreciate your courage then. You're the expert now, Swix. We turn to you for the expert opinions. It's true. Yeah. What, but no, like uh, I, I do, I do try to model it because this is the whole learning public philosophy, right? Which is you're not, you don't need to be an expert. You just need to put in the work. Um, you need to, you need to think really hard. You need to do the research, but then put it out there and let people correct you. And that's how you improve. And that's the only thing you can ask for. Well, you know, your career path and trajectory is proof that it's it can be successful if done with, I think, a humble mindset, which is what I think you approach it with. Putting your thinking out there and not feeling like you have to be correct or right or the expert to me is the epitome of humbleness. So I think if you take it with that approach, you'll get those kind of results or similar results of every time I think about somebody doing it in public, it's it, you're a good example of uh, how to do it well. Well, uh, thank you so much. And, and, uh, but you, you guys have been doing this way longer than I have. You know, however long, how long has been the change lock been running? More than 13 years now. I think we just, was it just 13 years, Jared? Yeah. November 19th, we were born 2009. So do the math. 13 plus years. Yeah. You, you guys, uh, you, you're, you're the originator, originators of this space. I'm just a mere copy. But uh, uh, when we, we, aren't we all though eventually within this world? Like, <laughs> didn't we just talk about that? Everything's a remix. That's what I was saying earlier. It's all a remix. <laughs> yes. And even that is a remix of a guy who made a, a series of YouTube videos called Everything's a Remix. And I'm just spitting his game. I was going to say, I was wondering if you watched this that video. I, oh, yeah, absolutely. That's why I think about it all the time when I think about, you know, how we take stuff in and output new things. I'm like, it's just remixes all the way down. Nothing new under the sun, Jared. Nothing new under the sun. Well, it's uh, it's certainly reassuring to think about that, too, that we're not snowflakes, that we, you know, we're just we're just remixes. <laughs> Like literally uh, half your, your mom and half your dad, right? Like you're, we're all literally remixes. That's true. Yeah, literally. Yeah. Well, that's it. Swix, thanks for well, coming on, man. Appreciate your yeah, thinking. Man. Anything else? Anything? I mean, we're going to have to ask, I guess. I'm listening to the show like as we're doing it. And I'm thinking like, gosh, there's so many links to link out in the show notes. My only 
request from you, Swix, as a guest is also to be our show notes maker because or helper <laughs> because you've you've just dropped so many links that I'm not sure I'll be able to pick up or we'll pick up behind yeah. the scenes. So please, as, as soon as we release this episode, you know, you know, com- commit back, help us with missing links as necessary. Oh yeah, please, because yeah. uh, I want these notes to be super rich. And obviously, we'll point back to your repo and you know, L space diaries and whatnot, but a summary in the notes would be great. I think we'll catch a lot of them, but I'm just asking you to pick up my gaps is all. Of course. Of course. Uh, it'd be my, my pleasure. Yeah. I, I love, by the way, I love that you put so much effort in show notes. Like that's another thing that podcasters don't do, <laughs> but yeah, it look like, uh, I think for people who are maybe feeling a bit of FOMO, I think AI researchers are also feeling the FOMO. This thing is, uh, this is a progressing at enormous paces. And I think a lot of people that I talk to are like, I don't have time to keep up on this. And like, but also at the same time, like this could change my entire world. Like what should I be feeling? And I always go like, you know, people always underestimate what they can do in, in 10 years, but then people overestimate like the, the amount of, uh, of impact that these uh, tidal waves are, are going on, on on a day-to-day basis. So basically like keep on top of the high level trends, like, you know, listen to podcasts like the change log and, and, uh, and get to know that stuff. But you don't have to, worry about it reaching you right away you have some time to keep up to speed on it so i think that's my general message like don't worry like technology always takes longer than you expect to diffuse about it the, the fact that you listen to the very end of a very long and rambly podcast uh, means that you're on the cutting edge because there's probably 90 percent of the world population that has just never heard of this and doesn't care you know, and they're still watching the World Cup or something. I just, I just like literally could not care less about the World Cup. Uh, but for them, that is their entire world. Wait, the World Cup's going on? Oh, man. <laughs> I hear, so I tell people that all the time, like business and tech is my sport. You know, that's what I, that's my response to folks who say, well, do you watch the game? No. What game? You know, and I say, well, ask me who did what or who got acquired there or how much for or what the next big trend is in technology. And I'll know it for the most part, or at least be aware that's my sport. So that's always my response. Like, you know, the world we live in is my sport. We're part of this community of chronic early adopters, which means we're probably always too early on a lot of things. And that's fine. Uh, which means like by listening to you're, you're already early. Like this is, this is still early days and you can catch up on it later or you can get up, get up to speed on it. Now it doesn't actually matter, but still obviously have an opinion on where things will go in 10 years. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, just from the conversation, the thing that thinks that stands out to me most is resilience and a creative mind. In this future, like if you have a creative mind and not just a skill set, maybe that's something you develop. And then resilience, the ability just to see, keep pushing beyond and persevere. I think those are two skills that anybody can have. But like specifically in this area, that's what comes to mind from our conversation today. Because, you know, you don't have to have the skill. You just have the creativity and the ability to wield these future texts to do all the magic. But Swix, thank you so much. Appreciate you. We'll link up everything we can. Swix will get our, our gaps on the links. Hey, by the way, check the show notes if you're listening to this. There's probably going to be tons in there. I say probably because we haven't written them yet. My hope is that they will be complete. But we also open source our show notes. So if there's something missing, if your name isn't Sean, Swix Wang, you're just a listener, you can contribute too. And we actually love that so much. So head to the show notes if it's not there and it needs to be linked up. Fork it on GitHub. Contribute it back. It's an easy win for you in open source. But Sean, thank you so much. We appreciate you. Thanks for having me. Okay, thank you for tuning in. That's it. This show's done. That is the almost last episode of the Change All this year. Thank you, Swix, for coming on and taking us down this AI trip. 
this AI road, this AI future, it has come by storm from ChatGPT to Stable Diffusion to Dolly to Open Whisper to all the things coming in 2023. Wow. If you have any questions for Swix, drop them in the comments. The link is in the show notes. Once again, a massive thank you to Fastly and Fly. And of course, thank you, Breakmaster Cylinder. Our beats this year have been banging. I love them. Next year, even better. Looking forward to it. Here we go. And that's it. This show's done. Thank you for tuning in. New listeners, welcome. Old listeners, welcome. And everyone in between, welcome. And hey, ChangeLaw++ is our membership where we give you the chance to get a little closer to the metal. You make the ads disappear. You get discounts in our merch store and you get access to bonus content on our podcasts. Check it out at changelaw.com slash plus plus. Okay, this year's done. I'll see you in 2023. I'm curious about the way, you know, all this that you put into the L Space Diaries and the way you, in a positively way, obsess about your passions has research behind it. And you mentioned how you research and how you percolate on certain things. And you mentioned in the show, you know, how long you wait to sort of absorb something before you put out a thought. And with ChatGPT, you put it out quickly. I'm curious about the way, the workflow and the the framework at which you research. How do you, can you quantify it? Can you describe it? Is there a way? So I think I talked about this. I'm not sure if I, I did it on, on, on the previous change log, but it's kind of the particle wave duality of knowledge. <laughs> I have a post on this. Oh God. All right. For, for the plus listeners, right? Like you, you're really into this yeah, now, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, particle totally wave duality. So you know how in quantum physics the light's a particle and a wave and you know there's a million different uh, pop culture stuff uh, on that. I think that applies to knowledge as well. You have to accumulate knowledge uh, in two ways and you have to output knowledge in two ways. Uh, you accumulate knowledge as in drips and drabs as things randomly appear in, in, in small little particles. Uh, sorry, as a wave of a continuous stream of stuff. And then you have to output stuff in two forms as well. So uh, that's why I have this L-Space Diaries thing, which is the concrete particles, which is like, you know, point in time, high level, very well edited summary of like covering a certain topic. And then the wave stream, which is the GitHub repo that tracks all the source data that backs up everything that I say in, in the blog. And I think that is the best way to do such knowledge intensive stuff, uh, because especially with anything that is fast moving because there's just so much coming in at once that will never fit a certain topic until it is time for you to write it up. But you need to collect it because it will get lost otherwise. And so similarly in your output, like, you know, there is your blog post, but then sometimes you want to do point in time updates to your, to your Twitter. That's kind of how I split up the short form versus long form as well. Like short form should be uh, wave, continuous uh, train of thought, like not really uh, fully well examined stuff. And then the, the long form should be very well considered, zero context, you know, well, well edited content. I don't know if that explains it very well, but I, I mean, look, like I also have, I have a lot of ton of tabs open reading from Packer News and Mastodon and Twitter. By the way, I'm also diversified to Mastodon. And I, I know you guys are doing that too. Yes, we are. I was just 
trying to follow you on Macedon here. Yeah, Sigmoid does social. It's not easy. <laughs> uh, there, are, there are a bunch of fake accounts that were not me. Oh, were there? Uh, yeah, I, I like I didn't set those up. That's that's hilarious. But Sigmoid.social is the primary Macedon for uh, for the AI people. Uh, Sigmoid being the primary uh, activation function for uh, neural networks. And, but like, yeah, I mean, it's just a signal at this point. Like, I, I guess there's like slightly better moderation or whatever, but uh, really it's just like who's on your home feed, right? Like that's, that's essentially it uh, as far as Mastodon choices go. Yeah, totally. They just, the actual user experience of following people is not straightforward unless they're on your instance. No, it's not straightforward whatsoever. You know, like they're cross instance following, it's just not that easy. Well, so what you do is you put your, your handle on your Twitter and then people scan the, scan all, everyone they follow on Twitter and then you scrape it in. Yeah. Right? That's how I, that's how I got my start. That's so. the hope. Yeah, totally. But no, but Adam, like I, I want to really answer this because I know like whoever's, you know, listening to this is interested in the process of being a creator themselves. Uh, I have had a relatively successful run at it and even the AI stuff, like I have had inbound job offers just based on the stuff I've already done. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, you present yourself. Which is stupid. <laughs> Which is stupid. Which is stupid. Yeah. I don't know, Jack. Well, so you say. I think it, that's kind of a double-edged sword because you don't always know what you know until you don't know what you don't know, I guess. Exactly. You, know, you, you can look behind you and you see the people behind you. They don't know much, but you've just invested a lot and it's sort of surface mind. It's in your RAM. You know I mean? You've been, you've been steeping in it you know, weeks and months now. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are most people. So it's like in your random access memory versus like long-term storage. So it's like there's zero latency on like your ability to pull quotes and reference names, even hard to pronounce names. Right. You have favorite quotes. The fact that you can have a favorite quote means that you've taken in more than one quote and you remember which one's your favorite. And so jobs are often, you know, materialized based upon current skill. It's future possible skill. So I think you have a highly likely future possible skill in AI and AI-related things. So it doesn't seem stupid to me to get job offers, but I get your reasoning for it. Being able to research, though, and like dig into a, a, a topic like this or any sort of like under understood, under well-known topic is a skill. And I think you've you've seemed to have mastered it to the point where you you surface the right kind of resources, you examine those resources you allow yourself time to percolate on them and to marinate on them. And then you distill that out into quality, quantitative thinking that I think is sound and reasonable. As Jared said before, I thought this was cool. And then I read your thing and then I think, okay, I think what you think now, because your reasoning for it was so good. Getting to that point, you know, you have a certain creativity, obviously, but there's also a skill that you've built. And I'm just curious how you've built that skill and how that skill gets put into use when you do it. Well, it's very kind of you. Um, well, I mean, you know, that, I think that is the job of a developer relations person. And I, I guess I've been doing it, you know, uh, for like six, seven years now. And yeah, like that's, I don't know. Like, um, the way I explain it to juniors who, who, who uh, you know, I'm managing right now is it is much better to, it's much more anti-fragile to build a personal identity and brand and skill set that relies on you not knowing things than it does rely on you knowing everything. Meaning it's, it's much more robust if you have your personal brand is I don't know things and I get up to speed uh, quickly. And, and and also when I say stuff, it is not from the position of an expert because that makes you robust to any attacks. Uh, people can't criticize you for uh, always being perfect. Anyway, so that's the meta layer. The, I think the, the day-to-day practical level uh, of this is understanding what people care about, what matters in a space, which is like money, power, jobs, you know, very, very bread and butter things that affect everybody. 
And then uh, people care about the future. They, they want to have a strong view of the future and, and uh, you know, wh- who, like, who wins and who, who doesn't. And then working backwards from understanding what people care about towards getting all the information that might be possibly relevant towards those goals. So like my GitHub repos are, are open. Like I have, a, I have a second brain repo and I have this AI repo. And you can see the way in, in commit by commit, like this is how I c- accumulate info. There's literally no other process. And I will say the other thing is I think having a very good radar of who in a space is serious versus who is just noise and being able to quickly assess like, is this someone speaking from a position of authority or is this someone just also learning like a, like another idiot learning public like myself? And sometimes they're not good. Uh, and, you know, like I will say that there are a lot of people who sort of follow my, my approach and they don't do a good job of it. Maybe they didn't put in the effort. Maybe they didn't have the, the right judgment. It takes practice and sometimes uh, people take some time to get there. But I have an eye for the people that are core to that space. Basically, what I'm doing is kind of like a what I describe as that always sunny in Philadelphia meme of like the, the crazy network map, you know, with all the red strings. I'm doing that in my head with all these people. Who's the, who's the in-group and who's the out-group, right? In the in-group, follow all of them. Be on top of every single thing that they say. And then in the, the out-group, like, you know, whatever, their opinions come and go. It doesn't super matter. Sometimes there are multiple in-groups and then you, you can play, play them off against each other. That's, that's super fun. And that's happening in, in the data, data field. For those who are following along, my, I, my Twitter list is a good reflection of that. So I have a Twitter list on AI people to follow. Uh, I think I call it AI high signal. And that's a good starting point for, for anyone uh, who wants my source code on, on that. But that's essentially it. I think people understanding what people want. And then doing the work of like storing that information in a, in a place that for easy retrieval, that is essentially the modus operandi. I, I probably spend about two to three hours a day on this right now. And then for the blog posts, they'll take a day to write. It's a lot of investment. Yeah. But like, like I'm seriously evaluating this as like a potential future career, right? Like uh, I don't, like I can't do this for every new thing that comes up. I don't, I don't do this for WebAssembly. I didn't do this for crypto. Uh, I don't do this for like whatever other new technology that, that you, that you uh, might, might. Uh, do you mean the research, like the, the distilling of the noise to signal? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Like I, I could use, yeah, I could use this technique for all those other fields that I, that I just, decided they weren't important enough to me that I, I wanted to do this on because it, it, it is a lot of work. Uh, I am saying no to a bunch of things because of that, but uh, I just feel like this is important enough to me that uh, I've been tracking it for a while. Uh, so like, uh, you know, some, something I've mentioned uh, maybe before, which is a lot of people have this question of how do you decide what to focus on? There's just so much on Hacker News every single day and tech is increasingly wider and affecting more and more of society. Like, what do you decide to choose on, to focus on? And, and so for me, like, I focus on mega trends, I, uh, things that are growing multiple uh, double digit percentages every single year and can conceivably grow for double digit years. And so like the very, very long sweep of, of adoption and, and uh, impact. And so AI is something I've been tracking for a while. Like I'm not a complete zero to this uh, because I took a, a couple of ML courses. I, I went through fast AI a few years ago. So I'm not zero. I'm not a zero at this because I, I noticed that there was some improvements. I did. I was completely unaware that this would be the year that it would work. <laughs> but I, w- I put myself in a position to be ready when it does so that I don't start from zero. What about tactically? I, I know that I think you mentioned or Jared mentioned in passing your use of Obsidian. What about tactically? What kind of tool? What's your tool set? Just roughly. Uh, Obsidian. 
and that's, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, I have a post on Obsidian as a second brain. If anyone's, uh, is anyone keen on keen on that? I'm gonna go check it out because I'm back on the Obsidian track because I didn't like it. I had an issue with their sync feature, and because I kind of hit a glitch, I didn't fully invest in Obsidian. And now I really understand it is like my own personal second brain wiki. And literally, if it's just scratch notes, I just just throw it into Obsidian. And I try to link it to something else quickly so I can at least get one connected node of thought. And then, you know, I've just been using Obsidian essentially to, to draft anything I'm thinking about. Like if it's in my random access memory and I don't have a place to store it that's a tweet or a URL or somewhere else, I want to put it there because I will come back to it later. Commando is my friend. The search feature is amazing and linking things is just like too easy. And the sync feature between that and my phone and other devices has been really good, which to me is what you need for that thinking tool. And we've talked before, Jared, about thinking, you know, like tools for thought with uh, Adam Wiggins and that kind of stuff with Muse and whatnot. I feel like Obsidian to me is just like so easy and so fast to use. And if that's like your tool, then I'm going to keep using it for sure. Yeah, yeah. But like, uh, for, I mean, for what it's worth, I, I'm not strongly opinionated on Obsidian. Uh, I could use some other tool as well. Uh, I just care about the features. It's the flow. Yeah, it's the workflow for me. Like opening quickly, doing quickly. Obsidian does that. So for me now, Obsidian is that. I agree though. Like whatever gets that feature out there. I've jumped from paper to Notion, which is just so clunky. It, it is not a tool for thought by any means. Obsidian is super fast. It actually doesn't open quickly enough for me. Really? You must have a ton of notes or something. It must be it must be openable uh, as quickly as you as thoughts arrive because you might lose the thought, or you might lose the reference. Uh, and on my phone, it takes like three seconds to, to boot up, uh, and that's too long because of the iCloud sync. And the iCloud iCloud is super slow. And the other thing, the other thing I, I do recommend as well is to enable the uh, Git plugin so you version control your notes. Because I've noticed Obsidian losing stuff or accidentally renaming things, accidentally deleting things. You never want that to happen. Uh, so you need to be, you need to check everything in a Git. <laughs> so yeah, must have uh, second copy. Okay, cool. Well, we'll have to swap some notes either in email or something like that because I need to use the Git. I haven't had that experience yet, but I do use Obsidian's native sync. And maybe that's, if you're not using that, maybe try theirs. Because like for me, I try to use Dropbox and then I try to use their sync at the same time. And that jack things up. And I was just like, okay, I don't understand this thing. And I build on it. But now I'm like deeply in just Obsidian and just their sync. And things seem to be really fast and they sync really fast too. So I haven't experienced what you've experienced yet. Yeah. So uh, Obsidian's good. Uh, and, you know, and, and for me, like the, the main feature is Markdown. I actually don't do any connected notes. That, that's maybe like a quirk of me because I, just, I happen to think that the graph, the, you know, sort of the network graph chart that everyone shows it's just mental masturbation. Like you, it doesn't actually have any value. <laughs> if you have good enough search, like it works. <laughs> um, for those who are interested in the tactics of note taking and second brain stuff, I was a TA for building a second brain. Uh, I've posted some notes on my blog, which you can read, but also you could buy the book now. There's a book version of building a second brain. And uh, I, I, I highly recommend it, mostly because it teaches you not to only take notes for the pleasure of taking notes. You have to take notes for action. The only purpose of notes is for you to produce future action. And you have to move it through the process of refining your ideas and to ship stuff um, because it's no good having the world's largest repository of notes and never shipping anything. 
if you you know if a large repository of notes uh, exists and no one around sees it, like did it really exist? So I highly recommend doing that. And you don't you buy the book, don't buy the book. I, I I don't really care. But it's not about you know, number one thing that he taught me, which I strongly believe is is not about the tool, it's about the workflow. Can you get it ingrained enough to capture everything that you hear and think and come across? Do you have the ability to organize them? Do you have the ability to distill insights from them? And then do you have the ability to express them? So C O D E. That's the four steps of building a second brain. Uh, and I just gave it to you in this extra special podcast.